Hey there, hashtag sistersinlaw listeners. This is Kimberly Atkins Store. I've mentioned my love of fashion here, and this week I published a deep dive in Boston Globe Opinion about environmental justice in the fashion industry. You can hear me talk about it on the Globe's Say More podcast, where I discuss loving fashion while still protecting the planet and the people in it. Check out the episode of Say More with Shirley Young wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters-in-Law with Joanne Banks, Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. And this week, we are so thankful to our wonderful listeners. You know what? We wanted to spend the whole hour answering your questions. We say it's our favorite part of the show. And it really, really is. We have been uh, compiling some of the questions that you sent us, and we're going to tackle them all for the entire show. But before we start, it's also important to remember, this is the season to get your hashtag sisters-in-law merch. We have hoodies for those cold nights. We have t-shirts and we have a brand new mug. It's a perfect stocking stuffer or just something to have a little, you know, spiced tea by the fire. Just click the link in the show notes or go to politicon.com slash merch right now. But before we get to all of your wonderful questions, you know, we've had our turkey dinners. Everybody's all satisfied. But this is actually my favorite time. It's leftover time. And so I want to know, what is the best Thanksgiving leftover meal to you? I'll start. So it is, you take the dinner roll, you split it in half, and you toast that puppy, (laughs) and you do a layer in this order, a layer of cranberry sauce, very Mm -hmm. thin, a layer of dressing or stuffing, whatever you got, a very thin slice of turkey. I'm not the biggest turkey fan, but in this, I like it. And then you put the the top of the roll on. You have some gravy on the side, like an au jus, and you dip <laughs> and bite. You what do you call this bite. concoction? Does this have a name? You know, I'll call it the smush sandwich. It's You just <laughs> smush it and you dip it. I'm very well maybe eating that, mm. dear listeners, as you're listening to this episode, <laughs> because I love it so much. Barb, what's your leftover? Uh, what's your leftover pleasure? Yeah, you know I can't do that because I don't. I'm like the kid in third grade who doesn't like their food to touch. It's all just oh, you're like my hubby. together. He yeah, like that I like all the tastes, but I like them all separately. Now my leftover manna is pie. I can eat it for any meal. And, and it turns out it's not just for breakfast anymore. But um, we are big on pie at our, our house for Thanksgiving. There was pumpkin. There was apple. There was something called Michigan Four Berry, which is also mm. good. And good. Um, I've been eating that like it's going out of style. But it is, uh, it is just delicious. So I could do pie. You know, pie at Thanksgiving doesn't count for calories. And so I just eat to my heart's content until it's gone. That's scientifically proven. What about you, Joe? <laughs> so I'm not a sandwich fan, but I love all the side servings of anything. I love the stuffing. I love the sweet potatoes. I love cranberry sauce. And in my family, no meal is complete without a jello mold. 
And I always make extras of those. I make a lime and pear and cream cheese mold and a cranberry mold. I also make cranberry chutney because I love cranberries and you can only really get them at this time of year. And the only thing I would disagree with on with you, Barb, is for me, key lime tart is the best mm. dessert for Thanksgiving or basically for any time, that or lemon meringue. But I make key lime tart. Joyce, what about you? So, um, you know, Jill, you actually inspired me this year. And I made a lemon sherry jello mold, which was a big favorite. I tested it in advance, made another one on the big day. Um, it would have been really great as leftovers, except that there was nothing left. We do um, <laughs> Thanksgiving with our two couple best friends and extended family. This year, we were actually over 30 people. So uh, wow. I am this morning, in hopes of having something that approaches leftovers, making another turkey, a little bit more dressing, some more um, cranberry sauce. And we are going to do the whole thing over again because you just can't have enough Thanksgiving. <laughs> Love it. Oh my goodness. All that sounds so good. My personal favorite pie is the one that I make every year, which is sweet potato. Mm. And so I have a slice of that right Solid. after my smush sandwich. Solid. And I am a happy camper. So I, uh, uh, I'm really hungry now. Uh, Share but- that recipe. It sounds really good. We had a kabucha squash pie from our favorite bakery. Um, not something I would have ever thought to make stunningly delicious. I'm going to try to recreate it next year. So here's another recommendation, a Watergate salad, (laughs) but you freeze it and then you can use it as a dessert. And there is such a thing as a Watergate salad. It's with pistachio uh, pudding mix and pineapple and some other stuff that I can't remember right now. It's but leeks. Really, the missing ingredient, it, of course, is leeks. called the water. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, and then when you finish, you find a bag of money. <laughs> I wish, yes. <laughs> Okay, so our first question comes from AZ West fan who asks, uh, and AZ West fan is a super fan and we appreciate that. Uh, The question is, I've been listening to your podcast since the very beginning, seeing you in person. Thank you so much for coming. And I'm addicted, but I'd like to hear how the four of you got together to start the podcast. I vaguely remember you talking about it at the beginning, but could you give us a recap? It's been a minute. Who wants to start with that one? Okay, I'll go first. (laughs) uh, And everybody else give your memories. But um, a couple of us had met in the green room and we just liked each other. And we obviously had similar views, not always agreeing, but always being sort of in the ballpark. And I think it was really fans who started saying, you should really do something together. And so that's how it got started. And there was even um, an original picture of us side by side that someone had drawn for us, and it really inspired us to get going. Yeah, it's the fans who came up with the hashtag, sisters-in-law. We didn't even come up with that. That was very organic from uh, MSNBC viewers, and we thought it was perfect, and we went with that. It's interesting because I had met Barb and Joyce 
uh, in the green rooms and and we had um, become friendly. But I had never met Jill Weinbanks in person until we actually started the podcast. And she was in DC and we had lunch and I was starstruck. But she oh, is as sweet and delightful as she comes across every week. And uh, we were fast friends. And so it's been great. You know, it's so funny. Barb and I were U.S. attorneys together. And there's this great picture. The one time our class of U.S. attorneys, you know, met Barack Obama, something like 93 or 94 of us, um, all at one time he spoke to us. We didn't really meet him individually, but he took a group photo. And Barb has one arm of his around her and he, I'm on his other side. And it's such a great photo. We, we were, I think, the two shortest of the U.S. attorneys or, or close to it. <laughs> yeah, I think that's how we got plucked out to stand next and, to him. <laughs> I mean, it's true. It's the one time being short was an advantage, but people chronically confuse it. You know, we both have four kids. We're both short. We have sort of short brown hair. We're both fantastically gorgeous. Um, and so <laughs> I always look at that picture, which is in my office, and it makes me feel so lucky all these years down the road. Um, that we're all still working together. Yeah, I have the same picture, Joyce, although I've cropped out everybody else to make it look like it was just you, me, and Barack. (laughs) (laughs) You're hanging out with the president. Best way to do it. (laughs) So this is why we're so thankful to our fans because they come up with ideas like this. But it's also why I'm so thankful for all of you Uh, because the three of you enrich my life every single week. You stimulate my brain, you challenge me, and I really love being with you every week. So our next question comes to us from Tish, who asks, can you please explain why the rules are different between civil and criminal trials? Tish, that's a great question. I'll start, but others might want to chime in on this. Um, I think part of it is, two very different interests are at stake in a civil case. What's at stake is usually money or an injunctive order. Um, What's at stake in a criminal case is a person's liberty. And so that brings with it a number of constitutional protections, like the right to confront witnesses against you, the right to an attorney, um, the right to a public trial, the right against self-incrimination. And those are there because we have a system in the criminal justice system that is uh, adversarial and it requires the prosecution to prove the case. Um, and you know, we have adopted for as a matter of due process that beyond a reasonable doubt standard. So I think because there really are very different things that are going on in a civil case versus a criminal case, we have different rules and different standards in those kinds of cases. Others have thoughts? You know, I took the question more literally. I like your answer better than mine, but I was just going to comment that there are actually a formal set of rules, and they're separate. There's federal rules of criminal procedure um, for criminal cases, federal rules of civil procedure for civil cases. Most states replicate that for state rules, which means for our listeners, if you're ever interested in, in looking at a rule in a case, you can actually Google. You can go federal rules of criminal procedure, guilty pleas, and probably get more than you ever wanted to know about how guilty plea procedure works. It's a great tool. I'm going to take a question from Rich in Oregon, because I hope he was at our show in Oregon, where we loved the audience. He says, in 2023, we could have AI create an actual performance of the trial. I assume he means the Donald Trump trial that won't be televised unless some miracle happens. 
And he goes on, where simulations of the participants spoken in their own voices could happen. And he asked, do you think that's scary? And I don't think it's scary as long as it is clearly labeled as a simulation, not as real. It has to be properly identified. I wish there were cameras because nothing will be as um, accurate in reproducing the language of the trial and the meaning of the words and the performance by the witnesses, their body language. That's the best thing. But I do think it's important for people to hear in a more meaningful way than just reading a transcript or hearing a reporter report. Jill, can I ask you a question, a legal question? Because I would be kind of creeped out if I heard my voice being simulated on AI and broadcast in some way. What about the the right to one's own likeness and publicity? Uh, You know, does that come privacy rights in any way? Do, Do those things come into play? Maybe not. I mean, maybe it's just me kind of creeped out by it, but is there a real legal issue here? First of all, you're a member, aren't you, of SAG or one of the unions? I was, yes. You were. You were. So you would have been protected because the new contract says something about AI reproducing and what you have to get. Um, I I was actually a, not a character, but I was in a Michael Moore movie, much to my shock and surprise, without any permission. Wait, I'm um, sorry. I, Wait, I th- do we have a new job? You you were in a Michael Moore movie? Were you in, I were you in Roger Michael... and me? Were you me and me? No, I was in <laughs> Fahrenheit 9-11, and I had no knowledge of this, but I, I was sitting it. in the movie theater. This was pre-COVID, where I actually went to movies, and all of a sudden, there I was on screen, giving some commentary on, I don't remember what the question was. And I was like shocked. And I called my lawyer and said, can they do that? And he said, yeah, they can. They just took it from MSNBC. And I said, doesn't MSNBC have some rights? And he said, no, they don't. So it, it, that was an actual real reproduction, not a reproduction. It was an actual filming and was portrayed as me being me. But I mean, it was still quite a surprise. Um, and yes, I think those questions have to be worked out, whether anyone would object to it. Maybe it's something, remember, um, at least some of the participants want this to be televised, so they might agree to it. And there would be no harm in someone reading without a visual element, the transcript of the other people. So let's say that Jack Smith, who has opposed the televising of the trial, says, no, I don't want any of my people to be shown. Well, then it could be read. There's no question that a transcript can be read. So um, that might be a way around it. And that is still better than having nothing. Better is actually seeing it live. That would be the best. But I think it's a great idea to try something like that to have people really see. It will miss body language. There's no question. And it would have to be an accurate portrayal. So that's one thing I would worry about. You know what really concerns me here, though, is the risk of deep fakes. Can't you just see some malicious actor coming up with a deep fake, maybe of one of the trials that's broadcasted or maybe of one that's not, foisting it off on on people who maybe aren't up to speed on what should be available and trying to convince them that stuff happened that didn't? I mean, I think at some point there's going to have to be some sort of legislation about deep fakes, but the problem is how do you identify them? How do you regulate them on social media? I think it's going to be a big problem. 
I agree with you completely on that. And that's why I started by saying it has to have a constant film over it saying, this is a reproduction. This is a simulation, whatever the proper, most compelling words are to make sure that no one thinks it's real. Yeah. Did you folks see that um, uh, Meta, you know, Facebook and Instagram and threads, I guess, has um, announced a policy for this upcoming election that um, any deep ads, political ads using deep fakes have to be labeled so that the public knows that it's a deep fake. So baby steps, but it's a start. Enforcing that will be tricky because <laughs> the bad actors in this field aren't going to identify it. And how are people going to know? So we got a whole series of questions, y'all, about Judge Eileen Cannon and whether recusal is a possibility at this point. We got one question from someone named Joyce, so I'll start there. She asked, what would the process be to replace Judge Cannon in Florida, and do you think that will happen? There was also one from Marie in Albuquerque, New Mexico. She asked whether the 11th Circuit could take the Trump case away from Cannon without Jack Smith appealing it based on her poor decisions. Um, and then Warm Monkey asked, is there any legal path for Jack Smith to get Cannon to step aside? So what do y'all think? What would you do if you were litigating this case? I don't think it's there yet. Uh, you know, I, she has certainly made some decisions that are concerning. The, the worst one, of course, was last summer when she allowed Donald Trump to file a separate lawsuit to challenge a search warrant. I mean, that just is not how it's done. And the fact that she entertained that lawsuit for as long as she did, I think, is what caused everyone to be very suspicious of everything she has done thereafter. So far, she hasn't done anything awful. She hasn't violated the law in any way. I think the one thing that she has done that has caused a great deal of concern is her refusal to um, accept Jack Smith's proposal to ask Donald Trump to identify which classified documents he's going to use at trial by this December so that they can begin their process of the, figuring out how they're going to handle classified information in, in the case. Instead, she said, we can talk about that in March. Um, and, you know, with a trial date in May, um, delaying that decision until March makes it seem highly unlikely that that May trial date will stick. And so I think people are already concerned about her. And now that we see this order, which is within her discretion, I think people are understandably uh, on edge about that. But I don't think she's done anything yet that is, you know, in violation of the law such that you could get her recused. Well, what's the standard? How would you get someone recused? I have a rare difference of opinion with Barb here. This is, I, I don't remember this happening for a long time. Um, <laughs> I think, so there's a pragmatic issue here. Let me just say this. The government wants to get this case to trial. Changing judges right now would involve delay. Maybe a lot of it, depending on the other judge's trial calendar. So I just think that we are past the point where, as a matter of practicality, the government wants this. But I think if they had done it early, they might have had a shot at it. There's some interesting case law in the 11th Circuit and, and there are different, you know, ways to um, have a judge recused. If there's a clear conflict of interest and the judge refuses to step down, lawyers can ask for the recusal. But there's a case um, called Martin that comes from a long line of cases when my office was prosecuting folks involved in the Health South corporate scandal. 
And one of the judges had repeatedly sentenced in a way that didn't reflect the conduct. And on, I forget now, the second or the third sentencing, the panel actually reassigned the judge at our request, recused the judge, and they said, it just seems like the judge can't set this aside at this point. There's just too much water under the dam. I think the government could have made that argument with Judge Cannon. She had this first outing where she was just completely beyond the pale. The 11th Circuit bench slapped her as hard as I have ever seen a panel slap a district judge. You don't have jurisdiction. You were wrong from the get-go, they said. Um And I think she's made these rulings, none of which by themselves might be objectionable enough to force recusal. But over the course of time, she has indulged Trump's request for delay, entertained arguments that she probably shouldn't have entertained. And now she herself is the delay mechanism on the classified documents um, proceedings that have to happen before this case can go to trial. And she's still holding out that May trial date space so nobody else can get it. If for some reason this case does go on appeal to the 11th Circuit and I was Jack Smith, I would carefully delay the way the amount of delay that would be involved. But I would probably just as rather get her off the case if I had the opportunity. So I agree with you, Joyce, on your point. But I am concerned about her being uh, killing the case by a thousand cuts. She refused in the beginning to delay the trial until after the November election. But it sure looks to me like she's one at a time doing something that will delay it. And as you included, and that prevents Fannie Willis from getting a earlier trial date. The reason that she requested an August 5th trial is because she was counting on the Florida case going forward and her starting after it ended. And if it gets delayed, it's going to hurt the August trial date and push that back. So I am concerned about death by a thousand cuts. And here's the kicker. Even if it does go to trial, as the judge, she makes all the calls about what evidence is admissible. And if Trump is acquitted, there's no appeal from an acquittal, right? So, you know, I don't know. I don't know her. Maybe these are just her honest calls that she's making. But if she has her thumb on the scales when it comes to evidence and she makes all of the close calls against the government, you can't get this in. You can't have this witness. You can't offer this document. Then she really could. It wouldn't be death by a thousand cuts. It would just be death. Yeah, I, I for a while, I was willing to give her some benefit of doubt that some of the rulings she was making was based on her, um, I don't know, youth and inexperience since she's a new judge. I hate to paraphrase Ronald Reagan, but there we are. (laughs) Um, I'm wondering now if it's what you're talking about, Joyce. I wonder if it's actually intentional. Yeah. I mean, she was an appellate lawyer in the U.S. Attorney's Office in Miami. That's one of the biggest districts in the country. They have a great appellate division. Nobody gets in there without a lot of experience. New judge, yes. New to appellate law, not so much. Okay, our next question comes from Foreign Bacall. I see what you did there. (laughs) 
The question is, what exactly is an amicus brief and how are they treated by the courts? That is a great question. So uh, an amicus brief is also known as a friend of the court brief, and that sort of hints at what it is. It allows people who have some sort of interest in a case being argued, but they're not actually a party to the case, to file a brief with an appellate court just giving some information or facts or law that can help the judges or justices make the decision and learn about maybe the history of the law or the legislative history, uh, help them understand if it's a highly technical case, some of the scientific issues around it, what the impact of it might be, what the impact of a ruling might be. It's meant to sort of help guide the judges in making their decisions, even though they themselves uh, are not exactly a party. And those briefs can be filed on behalf or uh, in support of one party or another, or they can be filed in support of no one and just saying, hey, just we're concerned about these particular outcomes with the uh outcome of this case. I find them as a reporter extremely helpful when I'm trying to understand what a case is about. I often sometimes, especially if it's really complicated, I'll start with some of the uh, amicus briefs because they can explain things, sort of take a step back and paint a broader picture about what is at stake in a case before you look at the merits briefs that really focus in a laser way about which the particular issues are in the case, and they can sometimes be harder to understand on first glance, but they're really important. Kim, I don't have anything to add because that was an excellent answer, but I do have a question about what you just said. Mm. Is it amicus or amicus? Because <laughs> I've heard both, right? The Dahlia Lifford podcast is called Amicus, and she is yep. certainly a student of the court. I, on the other hand, also have always said amicus. What about the rest of you? Amicus. I'm not sure how I've always said it now that called about to say it. I think I <laughs> you just I think say friend of the say, court. <laughs> I think I say amicus. All right. Well, there we go. Tomato, tomato. Amicus, amicus. Right. Well, that brings us to our next question from Riley, who asks, why are so many legal terms in Latin? <laughs> ah. Do you think we'll see a switch to English? I love this question, Riley. And um, the answer is that we draw a lot of our legal doctrine from England, which drew its legal doctrine from Rome, the Roman Empire, where they used a lot of these words. So you may have heard the phrase pro se, which means on one's own behalf, or de novo, which means from the new. Uh, there's one called, that I love learning about in law school, race ipsa loquitur, which means yes. the thing speaks for itself. And my personal favorite, Riley, you might want to tuck away for the right moment, which is uh, uh, bubulum stercus, which is Latin for BS. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to start using Say that. Say that again, Barb. I don't know that one. Bubulum stercus. Keep that one in your pocket. Yeah, you never know and you might need that. <laughs> my favorite is query clausum frigate. Something I've mean? never used in the practice of law. It has something to do with real estate. <laughs> that sounds good. Sounds like a curse. <laughs> so, because, since law school, all of the ones that start with raise res, like, you know, raise judicata, raise ipsa loquitur, it makes me think of uh, running because that's what every law school names oh, yeah, their the race, <laughs> the race judicata. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> 
But <laughs> they're, they're little foot races after Yeah, you know. but let me say, Riley, to give you some hope that there is a movement for plain English for lawyers. And in fact, I think most good lawyers really try to avoid some of these terms. You know, when good writing is writing, writing that is uh, meant to be understood. And if you sprinkle in a lot of Latin, it makes it difficult for people to understand. So I think plain English is where legal writing is headed. Certainly true in a trial court where you have a jury who needs to understand you, and certainly true in doing commentary on TV where you want the audience to understand what you're talking about, is to avoid using those or to define them immediately. One of my favorite questions from today is from Kelly, and it's something that I didn't actually know the answer to, so I had to do some research. And the question is, if George Santos is expelled or resigns from the House of Representatives, does he retain perks such as a pension? I thought that was a great question. And not only does he not, he actually won't get a pension even if he isn't expelled because he has said he's not running for re-election. And in order to get a pension, you have to have served for five years. And after a two-year term, he will not make five years. So, Good news, George Santos does not get a pension. So next comes from Liz in Haverhill, Massachusetts, hometown for my college roommate. Um, I don't think Liz is related. But the question is, when the prosecution calls a witness who has a plea deal, is the jury informed of that deal? Barb, what was was your practice in this regard? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's Giglio material right there. And, you know, a smart prosecutor will front that out, right, on direct examination. I'm, I'm not going to let the defense cross-examine the witness about their plea deal. I'm going to go through every painful detail of their conduct, the deal they got from the government, just how good it is, so that I can make them say, and what happens to you if you lie while you're testifying today? And they will say, I lose that deal, and you'll put me in jail for the maximum amount of time possible. I always found that to be a very constructive exercise in front of a jury. Our next question comes from Annabelle in Newport, who asks, uh, what do you think the quick settlement in the Cassie versus Diddy case will mean for the Me Too movement? I think that's an interesting question. Since it settled in one day, do you think that that impact is going to be different than in the other cases like Weinstein and R. Kelly that went to trial? You know, it's such an interesting question. You're right. And the Me Too movement has come a long way that instead of fighting it the way early um, defendants of Me Too accusations fought it and lost, this is a recognition that he was going to probably lose. And so I don't think that the early settlement is going to hurt the Me Too movement at all. In fact, it may be a guide to future miscreants who do this kind of conduct, that they better settle quickly. Better yet, they should settle before the case is filed and their reputation is already at least put into question. Um, we don't know, of course, what the evidence would have showed because it didn't go to trial. Um, but I think it's probably a good thing for the Me Too movement. I'm watching for the first time, I'm catching up, binge watching the morning show. And watching it is the most uncomfortable, horrible thing because it reminds me of how true every part of its sexism and me-tooism is 
back then and still today. So I think this is just another reminder that Me Too is alive and well and that it shouldn't happen and that defendants should recognize their culpability and agree to settle. I hope you're right, Jill. I mean, one concern that I have, I hope it's received in the way that you described it, Jill, because the concern that I have is that I think some people will see the quick settlement and claim that, oh, see, it was just a money grab. Uh, If it was really bad, she wouldn't have taken this. That is not how the law works. That is not how civil lawsuits work. Certainly not one that was brought under this New York law that we've talked about that gave, that opened up the statute of limitations for one year for people who have uh, experienced sexual abuse in the past to bring a case. This was a lifeline, as we've explained in other episodes. And it was, I cannot express how extraordinarily brave and difficult it is for one woman to bring a lawsuit like this against one of the most powerful men in the music industry. And I worry, A, the fact that we have this very quick settlement, which I'm glad for her. I'm glad that she does not have to go through months and months of a trial and it will probably be horrifically uh, traumatizing. But A, that takes it out of the headlines. So Diddy won't be talked about for weeks and months the way Bill Cosby or um, Weinstein or your other people were talked about. And there's also a thing, there's still people to this day uh, within communities of color defending R. Kelly. And I also think, and we've talked about this before, uh, with whether it's uh, Black women who have gone missing or something else, I think that there is a lack of, there's a hesitancy to believe women of color when they talk about Me Too. And her coming out, Cassie coming out, making these allegations, doing it by herself, not having that support. I hope that it doesn't have a chilling effect, no matter what, to other people and allow them to get away with this. We don't know the evidence because it's settled. But the accusations were not. They were horrific. Some of them were backed up by witnesses who spoke publicly. And I just hope that this opens up Me Too to everyone in a way that I don't think it's always been open. Can I just add to that something that I learned when I was on the um, sexual assault in the Pentagon Committee, which we learned, which is how devastating it is to go public, how horrible it is to relive the events that you have to then tell police about, have to tell a court about. It's really, really hard. So to stress what you said, I'm happy that she doesn't have to relive that by being called upon to testify to the details of it. And I hope that if it happens to any other woman, that they will find some support group and get rape crisis counseling or sexual assault. It doesn't have to be rape and get the help that they need to deal with it and to decide whether they want to go public with the accusation or whether they want to move on. And, um, you know, in the early days of Me Too, before Me Too started, women sort of buried it and moved on. We didn't go public with things that happened to us or that we knew about because we were career-oriented. I'm not saying it was right, but it did happen And I'm glad that the movement has started to make us go public. You know, Kim, I love what you said. It's really making me think about this. If we say, and we do as part of the Me Too movement, that we believe women, then we believe all women, right? We don't just believe women who 
look like they fit society's expectations for who deserves to be believed. I think it's something important, a place where we all may have some work and, and personal growth to do. All right, our next question comes to us from Robert, who asks, can you update us on the conviction of Paul Pelosi's attacker? When will it go to sentencing? Do you think he'll get the maximum? So, of course, uh, the attacker of Paul Pelosi, the husband of Nancy Pelosi, was recently convicted. He was convicted in federal court uh, for two charges. One was attempting to kidnap a federal official, Nancy Pelosi, and assaulting the immediate family member of a federal official. So the maximum punishment there, Robert, is uh, life in prison for the attempted kidnapping. And I don't know whether he'll get that much. You know, typically what happens is um, the person go is sentenced about three months after the conviction occurs. And oftentimes people ask, why does it take so long? Um, and that's because there's a probation department at the court that goes back and studies everything about the offender to help the judge fashion an appropriate sentence. They look at the person's background, their schooling, their employment history, um, addiction, uh, uh, employment, whether they were ever you know, beaten as a child, all kinds of things like that. And then there's a whole scoring system that takes place under the federal sentencing guidelines. Um, and the prosecution and the defense have some input into that and ultimately they advocate for that at the sentencing hearing. So it's rare that the statutory maximum gets imposed, uh, but uh, they'll come up with that sentencing guidelines range, and then the judge will be permitted to decide whether to impose either within, above, or below that range. And so we can expect to see three months from now, I guess that would be um, uh, maybe February sometime when there will be a sentencing hearing for that offender. Before we run out of time, I want to take a question from Oren. Are we stuck with the Electoral College? What are the ways of bringing about a popular vote in elections? And the answer is one of two things. We can either have a constitutional amendment, which probably is not realistic, or every state could pass the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact. My state, Illinois, has voted for that. And under that um, method, whoever wins the National Popular Vote the state agrees they will cast their electoral college votes for the candidate who won nationally. And that would solve our problem of having small states control the outcome without enough population to justify it. Our last question is one that a lot of people asked in different ways, and it's an important one. Jen started this off by asking, why did Colorado reject the move to keep Trump off the presidential ballot? Is there hope in other states? And there were some similar questions. Instagali asked, respecting the 14th Amendment decision in Colorado, do you think the district court deliberately punted to get the case to the appellate level? Show Aska asked, 
Colorado found that Donald Trump engaged in the January 6th insurrection. Does this help other cases? What do y'all think? There are a lot of important questions tied up here. Well, I can take Shoaska's question because that one's um, uh, the easiest one, I think. Um, and, and that is, it doesn't really affect other cases. So, you know, the judge made this finding. I'm sure that will be appealed. We'll see. But for example, this does not have any binding effect on the election interference case that Jack Smith is bringing that's before Judge Chutkin. The jury in that case will decide um, all of the issues in that case from a clean slate. And of course, Donald Trump is not charged specifically there with engaging in insurrection, though he is charged with exploiting the attack to try to pressure lawmakers to vote against certifying the election. Same thing in Georgia. You know, there will be no uh, binding effect of this case on the Georgia RICO case. Any question there has to be found fresh and separately. And that's because a defendant has due process rights and the right to confront accusers, et cetera, in the trial. So um, it will only uh, have a binding effect, if anywhere, in Colorado. Barb, I was going to just ask this. You know how there are 14th Amendment cases going on in other states? Do you think it'll influence those other states? That's an interesting question. You mean the judge is just looking yeah. at it? I guess it's persuasive authority. It isn't binding authority because none of those courts uh, are above any other. But, you know, to the extent you're looking for um, authority on these things, you could say, well, you know, I read the reasoning of this judge in Colorado and sounds, you know, I know she looked at lots of different sources and her conclusion makes some sense. So I think it could. I think it could have some uh, persuasive effect, I suppose, on other cases where this very issue is being decided. Yeah, or you could end up with a split and then it would go up on appeal, right? Once you had a split in decisions from different places, it could end up in the Supreme Court pretty quickly. Yeah, I think it's going to the Supreme Court yeah, anyway. I do you? too. Two of the issues that she ruled on was, one, did Trump engage in an insurrection? And she found, yes, no-brainer, of course he did. And the other one is, is he disqualified under the 14th Amendment? And she ruled no, because he is not an officer of the United States under the constitutional language. And that's the one that I'm concerned about. I was already concerned when some well-respected legal scholars started chiming in and saying, yeah, I think he engaged in an insurrection, but I don't think that the 14th Amendment applies to him. Just as I said before, a ruling by the Supreme Court saying that a president is not subject to the Fourth Amendment, 14th Amendment's disqualification clause, I think would be horrific. And the more um, things that the Supreme Court could point to, including this lower court, and say, oh, well, this judge seems reasonable and this analysis seems reasonable, the greater the the, the uh, likelihood that the Supreme Court could rule in that way. And that's why I don't like these challenges. I mean, I know people have the right to bring them, but I worry that a decision by the Supreme Court will not, that essentially could be seen as deciding this election will not be as accepted as a, a resounding defeat uh, in the ballot box that's done by the people. Um, and, and so, yeah, this is giving me a lot of agita. So, Kim, the political aspect of it and being defeated at the ballot box is a legitimate concern. But I do, am not concerned that the Supreme Court, even this Supreme Court, or maybe especially the Supreme Court, which is so tied to the founders' intentions. And there's no way that this court is going to find that, number one, the people who wrote the 14th Amendment meant to say, well, Jefferson Davis could run for president. He can't run for Senate. 
That seems really absurd to me. <laughs> I, it, I mean, doesn't it sound silly? He can run for some lower office. When you he put just it can't that way, too. It, it just can't be. And I think that the arguments that are being made, things like um, the word support the Constitution, an oath to support the Constitution is used. And there is a different presidential oath, which says protect and defend the Constitution. It doesn't say support. Well, that's a difference without distinction to me. The defend and protect seems to be a higher order of responsibility than just supporting the Constitution. And so, again, I don't think that they will play semantics with something so important. And I think, you know, this is one time when I think the meaning of the words should govern and that in the same way that courts could say, well, you aren't really 35. We see your birth certificate and you aren't 35, so you can't run. It's, it's self-executing. And I think this is, but particularly with the strength of having had a trial and a presentation of all the facts and a decision by this judge that the facts showed that he had engaged in insurrection. And remember, when it goes to the Supreme Court, they're going to take her findings of fact much more strongly than her findings on law. They, to use a legal term, they'll look at the law de novo. Um, and we've already explained what that is if you were listening <laughs> earlier in the show. Um, but they will take her findings of fact based on her being the trier of fact. So I'm not so concerned about it. Uh, it doesn't mean I'm not, you know, don't have some second thoughts, but I really think it's going to go to the Supreme Court whether there's a split. And I think we should also point out that there is a special law in Colorado that allows a lawsuit to be brought. So again, to the thing that this isn't binding elsewhere, it's a different law that allowed this suit to be brought than exists in other states. All right. Your lips to Sam Alito's ears. If, if I was the Supreme Court and I really wanted to play the field here, I might hear this case, but not resolve it before the election so that it would <sighs> only apply going forward. That might let them Ooh, sort of thread that needle, nasty. right? I, I mean, it just occurs Ooh. to me they could do that. But Kim, huge kudos to you here. I did not take this officer of, you know, pol- or whatever it is, public officer argument seriously until you flagged yeah, it several weeks ago. Yeah. I have been paying attention ever since you flagged it. That was a great catch on your part. I'm scared, Joyce. I'm scared. I was at the engaging insurrection was the harder question. Me too. And not the whether he was an officer of the United States. So interesting. I agree, but outcome. it's also, remember, it says civil or military officer. He is the commander in chief. How could he not be a military officer? I just think that the fact that he is the president, he is an officer, and he refers to himself as an officer. So I'm hopeful. Well, you know, a judge in Colorado, bless her heart, didn't see it that way. Um, But to go full circle from where we started, I mean, this is why I'm so grateful I have the chance to get together with y'all on Friday afternoons and talk about this stuff. Because, Kim, I I was smarter and better prepared because of you. The rest of y'all are consistently making me think um, more deeply than I might be inclined to on my own. Love y'all. Happy Thanksgiving. And Joyce, I, I know when you say bless your heart, I know what that means. It means mm-mm, mm-mm, <laughs> Thankful to have all of you sisters in my life and all our listeners. Thankful for all of you. Super thankful. Agree. Happy Thanksgiving to everyone, to you three and to all of our listeners. 
Thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Jill Wine-Banks, Barb McQuaid, Joyce Vance, and me, Kimberly Atkins-Store. And thank you all so much again for sending us such great questions. We clearly have the best, most whip-smart listeners, and we're so thankful for all of you. We wish we could have answered every single question you sent us, but as always, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds and our X feeds and our threads, and we'll try to answer as many as we can there. And remember, you can send in your questions for next week by emailing sistersinlaw at politicon.com or Xing them or threading them and using the hashtag sistersinlaw or tagging one of us. And show some love for this week's sponsors, Moink, Honey Love, Real Paper, and Aura Frames. You can find their links in the show notes. Please support them because they support us. And that's why we can bring this podcast to you each week. And if you're listening, I know you've already done this. But if not, what are you waiting for? Follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. And give us a five-star review because it helps those who haven't found us yet. Yes, there are still some. It helps them find us. Enjoy your leftovers and see you next week for another episode. Hashtag Sisters in Law. I can't stop thinking about bacon now, but I can't be eating bacon right after the big old meal. That I just ate on Thursday. What's wrong? You with can me? always eat bacon. Always. Just wait till Saturday. <laughs> oh my goodness. I just feel awful. Thank goodness that none of this food has calories. I'm sending you all the recipe for candied peppered bacon. And that you sounds will... re- I want to make it now. Like, thank you. I'll That's send it to wait, you I, right wait, now. I've got an idea. Is there such a thing as bacon pie? Oh my gosh. <laughs> I think it's well, called bacon. Well, there's bacon on donuts. Have you ever had that? It's delicious. You know, we get these donuts. They have like maple sugar frosting and bacon, and, and they are really good. <sighs> I don't even like donuts, but I like the bacon donuts. Bacon for dessert sounds excellent. <laughs> <laughs>